Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Work All Happiness podcast, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Emma Stewart. Now, I've known Emma for a number of years, and as you're about to discover, she's quite some social entrepreneur. She's set up TimeWise, and she's also set up Women uh, Like Us. She's worked across a huge range of development roles in the private sector, in uh, civil society, and also in social enterprise. And she's also done some work in documentary television, and we'll find out about all of that. She's also won numerous awards, including being recognised as one of the UK's leading radical thinkers by The Observer. So we're very keen to hear some of that radical thinking uh, on this podcast. Emma, welcome. It's lovely to be talking to you. Thank you. Delighted to be here, Mark. Now, what I want to start by finding out is where did all of these great social enterprise thoughts and initiatives come from? When you were young, when you were at school, um, were you radical then? Did you know what you were going to do? What, what were you like in your school years? <laughs> I, I never became a prefect, I'll tell you that. So <laughs> I think I probably was slightly radical um, and, uh, and slightly went against the kind of grain of um, authority. No, I mean, I, I, mean I, had, I had a relatively stable sort of secondary school years. I think um, my early childhood, my father was in the RAF, so we traveled all the time. And to be honest, um, after a number of years, my mother decided she'd had enough. And so my parents split up and we settled in the Cotswolds. Um, but I you know, was the daughter of a single mum who was a uh, primary school teacher, secondary school teacher, in and out of work. Um, struggled, if I'm honest with you. Ended up, because those were the days of, of being able to get into a grammar school. So I had a very good education, but we didn't have a lot of money and it was tough. And my mother had quite a lot of mental illness issues. Um, so, so it made me want to, I guess, try and make sure that people had kind of fair access to um, uh, decent standards of living and decent work because I saw my mum struggling. You know, she juggled trying to work with trying to bring me up and um, she found it really hard. And so I think that sort of whole agenda around trying to tackle inequality um, was kind of, forged from an early age and so at that early age um obviously you you discovered those those feelings uh and you wanted to do something about it and we'll we'll talk about the brilliant work that you've done about it but did it did it shape you in any other way did you become more independent did you think oh i'm going to go and set things up i mean did how did it shape you in in that sense i think it made me resilient and I think that is a really um, important kind of quality in, you know, in life generally. And, um, and I think it also made me not afraid to kind of try and sort of push myself out of my comfort zone to try and do different things. Because what I was really aware of is, you know, I had a decent education, but I had a quite a challenging upbringing. And so I wanted to use what I'd learned to try and push myself into into different areas so I think my career has sort of been a, 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 a it, it's been 
wiggly, as they say, because I've just tried lots of different things. Um, because it was important for me just to try and sort of push through and 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 achieve the things I wanted to without feeling like I, I had I was held back in any way. So yes, resilient and wiggly, I guess, is probably <laughs> and what were you what were you good at at school? Um I loved drama. Uh I absolutely loved drama. I loved English, I loved art actually as well. So and I think there's something also I, I like storytelling. And there's a bit of a thread in my career, which is, you know, if you want to stimulate social change, you have to tell the stories about where problems exist and you have to touch people's hearts and minds because often, whether you're talking to a minister or a business leader or um, or just someone in your local community, it's, it's the stories that count. So I think there's a sort of thread there around portraying images and telling stories and using words to um, try and get what I want. <laughs> and and um, uh, when you, you were at school, what, what subjects did you excel in? Were your favourite subjects the ones you excelled in? I, I was terrible at Latin, I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> but then I don't know, I haven't come across many people who are good at Latin. Um, uh, no, I was, I, was, I, I was lucky, I was good at the things I enjoyed. So I was good at um, English, I was good at art uh yes and i was i was i was sort of generally okay at everything i think um but i um but i i had to sort of push myself i had um you know i had various blips i didn't do very well in my a levels if i'm honest with you i ended up through clearing and it was really interesting because i was sort of pushed on a path to um as i think we often are at school to which and and for grammar school particularly to be quite academic so um, I was pushed to apply for Oxbridge, didn't get there, didn't do very well in my A-levels and actually ended up in the most fantastic college where I was able to paint big murals and read amazing books. Um, so I think, you know, I realised that, that there's, there's lots of different paths that you can choose and you might feel you should be on one, but actually I, was, I ended up, and I'm advising my 18 year old son on this at the moment, choosing a course, a university, which I knew I'd enjoy because I think you just have to enjoy work, don't you? Yeah, you do. And so when you'd finished at college, what did you decide to do? Well, I had all these great plans about going traveling, um, but I was really interested in film and um, it was sort of spun off of my art degree. So I made, I'd made a short film when I was in my final year at uni, just off, off my own back. Um, and uh, and I was sort of trying to think about what I wanted to do. And I just stumbled one day in the park near where I lived. I was literally in my final year um, on a little mini film shoot. Uh, and there was a community project going on and um, uh, they were making a film about something. So cameras, lights, a uh, bunch of young people actually. It was a sort of film school near where I lived. And I just thought, oh my God, this is really exciting. So I just went up to, I found the woman who was organizing it and I just went up to her and I said, can I help? <laughs> I'd love to do something like this. So um, all of my plans sort of go traveling went out the window because she basically offered me a job. So I was working within, for her, within two weeks of graduating and I absolutely loved it. And that sort of set me on my first career path. I mean, it was a, it was a sort of social enterprise before we talked about social enterprise really back in the, I guess, well, sort of late eighties, early nineties, helping young people to make films um, and then get into the film and TV industry. Young people who would never have normally had the opportunity to do that. And I loved it. So yeah, so it was a really interesting start. And, and did you think you wanted to do that or did you just happen across it? 
I wanted to, but I, I think like lots of people at sort of that age, I had absolutely no idea how I was going to make it happen. So I was just incredibly lucky. But then I also think, you know, we, we take our light, don't we? And we use it. Um, the fact that I stumbled across this film shoot and took the opportunity to try and sort of turn it into a job. Um, but I, I had no idea. I just knew I wanted to work in the film and television and I wanted to make programmes. Uh, I had not really thought about how I was actually going to go about getting a job. Um, so, yes, it was, a, it was a very fortuitous moment. And had you had other jobs during your time at college and at school? Oh God, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like probably everybody. I um, I worked it. I worked in a cafe. I did a lot in hospitality. I worked as a waitress. I worked. I did sort of weddings. Um, I worked as a nanny. Uh, I mean, I I was sort of in the days of uni where we ha we still had a bit of a grant. Um, thank God, because I needed it. But I had to work. I had to work as well because I was I was studying in London and it's really expensive. So. Yeah, so I part funded my way through uni by just doing all kinds of odd jobs. Um, God, you name it. Um, I was always doing some kind of work and I was always working part time as well as studying, which is quite interesting when I think about what I do now, actually. Um, so I wasn't afraid of work. And I think there, I had to, you know. Was there anything that you learned from that early work, Emma, that, that helped you when you got your first proper job? Um, the value of EQ and relationships, I think. The value of getting on with people, um, the importance of just saying, I'll try that, I can do that. Um, and putting yourself in the frame for things uh, and making yourself visible uh, and not being afraid of conflict as well. <laughs> so I learned, I think I learned a lot about how work works in the context of working with people. And I think that's uh, you know, one of my bugbears is sort of how we how we offer careers advice for kids at school and I think one of the things we don't always think about is the relational skills you need to just work with other people um, uh, and I learned that at a very early age and I think that's held me in good stead throughout my career because I spend my life persuading people to recognise problems they haven't seen and do something about them. <laughs> and then when you went to work in TV your dream job tell me was it all that you expected it to be? It wasn't, it wasn't. It was really hard work. It was really, but it was amazing fun. Um, I was very fortunate. I worked in documentary production and it was the golden age of fantastic documentaries that were being produced by Channel 4, BBC, and you know, Modern Times and all of those cutting edges. I mean, I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. Every day I would go into work and I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I would work with these amazing directors. I mean, on, with documentaries, you work with a very small group of people, you know, there's sort of five or six of you going off on shoots all over the world, really. And I remember finding myself at the age of about sort of 26, driving a, um, an HGV truck, I think, through the streets of Boston in the middle of the big dig with three burly cameramen in the back and one very angry director who was tired and needed to get to her hotel on time and just thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing, but it's great. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I learned very fast and I learned to ask loads of questions and I got to see some amazing places and meet some amazing people. I also worked incredibly long hours and I think that was the other kind of another sort of learning point in my career of recognizing to watch out for your mental health because there are times when 
I think, and it's the nature of those sort of um, in the creative industries. You know, you can do 12, 14 hour days and then you get a few hours sleep. I remember doing a red eye flight from the States to Brussels and getting three hours sleep on the flight and then having to be up at 7 a.m. to do a whole other 12 hour day film shoot. You know, you learn to kind of keep a check. And I think when you're younger, that, men that mental health well-being piece is harder to sort of see. Uh, but I, I learned the, probably the wrong way uh, that there were points when I just burnt out and I had to stop. Um, but it taught me to kind of keep a watch out for some of those warning signs. <laughs> um, yeah, but I made some amazing friends and we made some wonderful stories. We told some wonderful stories. And so for anybody listening to this who's thinking, my dream job is to work in TV, uh, to be a documentary maker, what advice would you give them on, with the benefit of all your hindsight? I would say, I mean, it's quite a different world now um, and there's, the budgets are very tight, but I would say do your research and work out exactly you know, what it is you want to do. Do you want to do drama? Do you want to do documentary? Because they're very, very different for a start. Be resilient. Recognise you're going to have to write a lot of letters. Try and see if you can get on any kind of sort of work experience schemes, but at the same time, be mindful that there's only so much you can do for free and then people actually should pay you. <laughs> and make friends with people, make cups of tea. Don't, uh, you know, one of the things we used to say when we ran our film school is you may have a media studies diploma, but you're gonna be making tea for a long time. And so be prepared to sort of muck in and be warm and friendly um, and have a can-do attitude when you get your first opportunity. Uh, and then people will remember you. And, and it will take a while and it's not for everybody, but, um, and it's hugely competitive. And also, I, I think at a step before the sort of job hunting is make something or do something, have something that's practical and real that you can show um, if you're going for jobs or going for opportunities that it, it's more than just an aspiration. You've, you've had a go at making a programme or you've, you know, even if it's just something on your phone, because uh, it just shows your interest. And tell me, why did you decide to, to leave uh, TV and documentary making? because I was pregnant in my production office at nine o'clock at night um, on the call to my crew who were in LA because obviously we had a massive time difference and I realised I wouldn't be able to do it and have a baby. <laughs> well, that's not true, you can and you should, but I realised that the job I had been doing was going to be incredibly difficult to do with a small child. And so I, and I'd been on sort of fixed term contracts for a while. So I decided that this would be my last fixed term contract. I would have my baby, my first baby. I would take a, a bit of a break and then I would have to work out what I did next, but it probably wouldn't be, I wouldn't be able to go back into certainly into production uh, because I involved lots of travel and time away from home. And I just didn't want to do that. And it, but it really hit me a bit uh, like a sort of thunderbolt. <laughs> and I think it's one of those things when you sort of start families, you sort of get pregnant, you get very excited about the pregnancy, but actually the sort of what comes next, I just hadn't really thought about. <laughs> so if, if we fast forward from there, because I think it's a really good segue into TimeWise, uh, which you co-founded now uh, quite a time ago. Um, it's all about, uh, flexible working and flexible working for people doing everyday jobs. So what, I, what I'd like you to do is just explain to uh, our listeners 
how you came up with the idea of founding TimeWise and what you're trying to achieve. So we started, myself and my business partner, Karen, um, initially called the organization Women Like Us, and then it evolved into TimeWise. And we, we came up with the concept because we had um, done a bit of work together uh, and we had been consultants actually advising firms how to become kind of more like social enterprises. Uh, and so we were in the art of kind of generating jobs and we realized that the clients that we were working with kept asking us, do you know any good women like you who can do a couple of days here or a couple of days there on projects? And we did. We knew lots of women like us who had, for whatever reason, mainly because of children, sort of fallen out of the labor market and were trying to do all kinds of different things in a way that suited their work-life balance and, and being able to look after their kids. And we realized very quickly that there were thousands and thousands of women like us who had a huge amount of skill and experience but were not able to stay in the workplace so we came up with the idea and initially we um we decided that what we needed to do was to coach women back into work so we started doing women returner programs way back when um but we also very quickly realized that really we didn't need to fix the women the women weren't the problem the problem was actually there weren't enough good quality part-time flexible jobs um, in, in the workplace to be had and that, uh, that it was a structural barrier. So that then became TimeWise and, and I guess the sort of the mission behind it is this is, it's a social business and the social mission behind it is that we believe that everybody should have the flexibility they need in work without compromising their careers. Um, because what we see, what we saw then and to a certain extent it's still the case now is if you want to work part-time or flexibly, um, the chances are you may not be in work because it's really hard to find a good flexible job or you may have found a part-time job but you are unable to progress your career and you have to often compromise uh, pay for flexibility and all sort of seniority for flexibility and we don't think that's right so um, yeah so that's that's sort of how it came about really. And you said or we said social enterprise quite a few times uh, just explain to our, our listeners what a social enterprise is and why TimeWise is a social enterprise. So a social enterprise is, um, is somewhere sort of between effectively a sort of charity and a commercial business. So it's an organisation that trades in the market. Uh, so it will either sell products or services, um, but it has a social um mission and a reason for doing that so you're measured effectively most most commercial businesses will um will measure their success by their bottom line um by how much money they make and, and the financial return we measure that but we also measure our social return so we have the social mission at the top and then we measure our social impact every year so our success is based on um both being able to sort of financially um take bring a return but also make sure that we are creating social impact so that we are helping people um, to get into work, to get on in work. We are helping to create a fairer, flexible jobs market and we're ultimately delivering on that mission and we measure that really carefully. So it's effectively, it can be all kinds of different things, but it's an organisation that um, often is um, for profit, but that profit is reinvested as well to achieve that social mission. And, and just talk to me a, a, about how you've developed TimeWise from that initial idea that you had with your business partner to where you got to today. Um, what are the good things and what are the more challenging things you've found in developing uh, the organisation? 
Well, and I should say the reason we're at a social business is because we realised very early on that we didn't want to go out and make a sort of charity case about why women shouldn't be in, why women weren't in the labour market or why actually increasingly men were struggling to get flexibility. We wanted to, um, to create a business solution to a social problem. So we have evolved our model several times over the last 15 years. Um, um, but fundamentally what we do now, we do three things now. We do a lot of sort of awareness raising research, campaign work to champion the benefits of, of flexible working. Uh, and we also track the state of sort of flexible work in, in the labor market. Um, the second thing we do is we help businesses get better at it. So we run consultancy and training and we develop programs. Uh, some of those are, you know, our clients are very broad and they range from Tesco to Google to major NHS trust to the Scottish government. Uh, um, and then the third thing we do is we run a job site because ultimately for us, the end goal is to make sure that uh, we have a marketplace for people who want to work flexibly from day one so that they, they have that job mobility. Um, uh, in terms of uh, what, um, what are the kind of challenges and, uh, and, and sort of the highlights, I mean, the challenges. Um, and it's getting better, but the challenge was that we were pushing on a door that was sort of slightly open by many of business by many businesses to try and persuade them that actually flexible working was a good thing. Um, and so we spent a lot of our early days trying to sort of talking about the why. Uh, but now the doors are, are open, um, but it's all about the how. So I think that the biggest challenge is often persuading businesses. Um, that they need to invest in driving change um, because there is often an assumption that uh, everybody gets, uh, you know, people can work flexibly, everyone will ask for flexibility and the market's okay. But actually, when you talk to people who really need flexibility, the market's not okay. And particularly for those at the lower end, you know, who are having to work part-time due to health or care reasons. So I think one of the challenges has just been persuading businesses to listen and then persuading businesses to act and making sure that they act, but also commit and invest to work with us. Um, we, it's a very, very different marketplace now. Um, and I think we're in the, now we're in the, you know, businesses have really woken up to flexible working. Um, it's how we make it fair and equitable for everybody. In terms of, I mean, in terms of the sort of the, the plus side, I mean, we've worked with thousands of businesses and men and women over the years. What's great, is when we know someone gets a job, you know, <laughs> when we've advertised a job and someone gets a job, what's great is when we see somebody, uh, a, a manager in an organization we're supporting have that light bulb moment where they, they realize that they can and should be having a conversation about different ways of working. Um, and they see the kind of talent and potential in, in people that they can get when they, when they give them that autonomy and that control. So there's so, lots of ups. <laughs> so for, for managers listening to, to this podcast now, um, give them your pitch on why they should consider a more flexible workforce. Um, because they can't afford not to. Because uh, nine out of 10 people in the UK want more control and autonomy and flexibility in how they work. Because, um, so if you want to keep good people, particularly after this experience, you need to be listening to them and you need to be considering how to enable them to do their best work uh, because you will attract a far wider and more diverse talent pool if you talk about flexibility from day one because for many people how they work is more important than how much they are paid 
and so you will be able to have a wider access to skills and a, and a more diverse talent pool. And thirdly, because um, commercially it makes business sense, because actually the, all the evidence shows that the more flexible organisations are, the more engaged their people are, the more empowered they are, uh, and the more productive they are. So talking as we are now at the, uh, or drawing to the, to the end of the, uh, the pandemic, uh, uh, people have been working at home for a year. How do you think that's going to affect people's approach to flexible working? So the first thing to say is we've been doing remote working through the pandemic, which is just one part of flexible working. And I think it's really important for businesses to recognise the difference. Um, it, what it has done is it's created a seismic opportunity to change how we think about work. Um, and I think there's some real opportunities and some risks as well. I think the opportunities. No, we've debunked the myths that you can't be productive and effective while working remotely. Uh, we've made very visible, if it wasn't so before, the sheer demand from workers for flexibility. People want to carry on doing this. They don't want to go back to the way things were. Um, and we have shown that we can be productive and efficient um, in designing work differently. So there's huge opportunities. I think there's some significant risks. The risks are that we are in danger of um, creating a sort of two-tier labour market here when it comes to thinking about flexibility. Clearly, you know, a huge number of people have lost their jobs. Uh, and what we're seeing is that's disproportionately impacted on women. It's disproportionately actually impacted on people who work part-time or flexibly and low-paid workers. Um, so we have the risk that what I don't want to see is a, is a response and an evolution of this where those that can take their laptops and work remotely because they're in office-based jobs and those that can't, the millions of frontline workers, We've got us through this pandemic can't have any control or change so you know there's flexibility in every role and there should be so i want to avoid that sort of risk of inequality getting worse that two-tier response and also we've got to be mindful that what comes out the other side should be a fair and inclusive approach to work that means we look after our well-being you know we've the, the, those that have worked remotely have worked far more hours over this period, they've had blurred edges, blurred lines, and that's not good for any of us. So I think there's some huge opportunities, there's some risks, the gap in between is how you translate what we've learned into a more systemic approach within business to designing jobs and to um, to embedding flexibility well. So, um, so we've just sort of touched on where you work. Uh, let, let's now talk on about when you work and the gig economy has given the opportunity for people to be flexible about when they work. And today we've just heard of the ruling uh, that the High Court's passed down in regard to Uber and making their um, contractors actually employees. So what are your thoughts about the gig economy and the opportunities there are there to empower people to be more flexible in the way they work? So I think the principle of empowering people and giving people flexibility is, is good. I think the risk with the gig economy is when people are forced to compromise on security um, and pay and rights for that flexibility. And uh, what we want to get to is the sort of sweet spot, which um, so Matthew Taylor, um, when he advised the government, did a review for Theresa May, and he talked about two-way flexibility. And effectively, we just we call that the sweet spot of time-wise, which is 
is people need some control and autonomy over how much, when and where they work to do their best work. And businesses need to provide some kind of, they need flexibility in terms of how they utilize resource. If you, if you get the two things right, you've got that two-way flexibility, which is fair for both. And I think with the gig economy, it's, it's, it's not fair um, often for individual workers and they have to compromise. And I think with Uber, the challenge clearly we all, we're all very aware is, has been um, uh, the fact that it's exclusive, that people don't, you know, workers don't have holiday pay, they don't have necessarily the rights. And, and I think they should be classed as workers. And I think the ruling today is a step in the right direction. I think it, we need to go further though. And I think one of the biggest issues we've got is how to ensure that when we see bad practice, um, people who call it out, are able to do something about it and that there is enforcement in place. And two related questions. When do you think your work will be done, if ever? Um, and if and when it is, what will you do then? <laughs> At sleep. <laughs> um, I... Um... We often talk at Timewise about the fact that, you know, what, what does success look like? Success is that we don't need to exist. So I think when our, um, and that's an interesting, again, social business principle. Um, I think the problem will be fixed when everybody feels, when we have achieved our mission, which is everybody feels that they have the ability to have some kind of flexibility in how they work and not compromise their ambition, career, pay, security to do so. Um, I think we're a long way off. Um, uh, you know, you just have to, I mean, we've only had the legislation in for the right to request for not that long. So I think we're probably talking decades, but I think if we're very thoughtful and we act on what's happened in this last year, then I think we can catalyze that goal um, to be achieved a bit faster. But um, yeah, we're, we'll take some, it'll take some time. What would I do when I've done this? Um, probably find some other cause. <laughs> Uh, um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting, you know, people talk about your five year plan, your 10 year plan. I've been so passionate about doing this work and it's defined me. I think I will probably find something else. Uh, um, and I'll probably do something very, very different. And um, I know that you've taken uh, the work or workplace happiness test. Um, so tell me about that. When you did that, what did you discover about what you'd like and might least like about the um, the role you currently have? So I'm in a fortunate position in that I, you know, I've been the boss of my organisation, I'm the co-founder, I'm now in a slightly different development role, but still I have autonomy and I have control and I have trust. I have a great team. So all of those things I expected um, and so therefore my scores were high. Um, I think what I, um, what it made me do is think about do I walk the talk do I practice what I preach and I think um, probably where I scored down was um, in my own work-life balance which was interesting and probably not a massive surprise and I think that's I've heard people say that if you're a social entrepreneur it's, it's the worst of all possible words because you, you're driven to sort of try and achieve a social mission and you are also running and, and sort of driving commercial change as well so you do work damn hard but I think so I think that, that it taught me that I've just got to keep a watch out um, which is a perennial challenge, as I said, from my early career to now in um, my own well-being and work-life balance. Um, but generally, I was really pleased, and it was it was fascinating to do actually, because I think we don't, and I think what you're doing more broadly is really interesting. I think the whole idea of happiness at work is we've seen consistently at Timewise, you know, work-life balance, 
brings people happiness, control, autonomy, voice in the workplace, uh, a sense of opportunity, progression, ambition, um, all of that. But, you know, we don't always define it as happiness. But if you're happy, you work hard and you, you enjoy your work and you deliver great, great results. And um, if you were to think of somebody who you would you think would benefit from taking the um, uh, the happy at work test, who would it be? <laughs> That's a really difficult question. Um, who would benefit? Um, I wouldn't. I, I think I would actually say um, if you're probably in your second job. I think there's probably a time at which it's good to take it. So I think if you're probably you're in your second job in your career and you're probably a bit like me, you're in a kind of wiggly place and you're trying to define where you go next. I think that time would be a good time to take it because it will probably give you some self-reflection of helping you think through what you enjoy and the things I was saying earlier about what relational aspects of your job matter to you. Um, to help you kind of define where you would go next. So yeah, I would say it's, it's it's probably really useful for that sort of point in somebody's career. And if there was an individual, if you could think of one person, not the prime minister, who you think would benefit from sitting down and thinking about were they in the right job, were they getting the most from their job, who would it be? I think in in the business world, um, I would say. I mean, I think Mark Carney was a, is a, is an interesting example of someone who. I think probably, um, uh, and the reason I'm saying him, I, he probably doesn't need it, but I think he's an interesting example of, of somebody to think about in the context of what you assume they are, how you how you perceive them in business, and actually what drives them. And I think what he's but he's decided to do since becoming being the, the governor of the Bank of England and moving on has been really powerful because he's moving into the sustainability space, he's moving into other sort of wider, broader areas. So I think if he, I wonder whether he might have done it when he was the governor of the Bank of England and that that helped him to sort of think about those or whether that was just ingrained. But I think, I think you know, probably within the context of financial services, um, that is a very intense sector to work in. I think somebody like Mark Carney you know, the, the chairman of the banks that we, you know, we all know and love. I think that sort of question to sort of say, is this where you thought you'd be? And, and, and what can you do with your role and the power and the, um, and the voice that you have? I think and, it's and an interesting point because we measured 26 sectors, including uh, finance. And what's fascinating is that people in finance score very highly on things like uh, feeling fairly paid, um, but actually score amongst the lowest in recommending friends or family to come and work in their sector. Um, and that's almost the opposite from, say, the nursing profession, healthcare, who are very proud of what they do, proud of their organisations, would recommend it, but uh, on the other hand, don't feel that some of the, the pay and reward things are right. So it's fascinating on a sector by sector basis to see the difference with people view the, the pros and the cons. And, and my, my last question, Emma, to finish on a happy note is what piece of music when you hear it makes you feel happiest of all? <gasps> oh, um, it's got to be disco. <laughs> um, Disco. Um, You're almost breaking out into singing it. <laughs> I'm I trying to, to sing D I F C O. 
no, no, not the actual song, but anything from that period, um, I think um, really gets me going. Anything that I can get on the floor and dance to, um, I would say, and it's, it's probably um, Dancing Queen uh, by ABBA, because um, that's the one thing that I know makes me happy is dancing with my mates. And I just think it's a fantastically uplifting, happy song. And um, uh, yeah, so I would say Dancing Queen. Well, on that note, Emma, can I thank you very much for uh, being on uh, this edition of the Work or Happiness podcast. Uh, you have been an absolute inspiration in terms of what you've done, the work that you've done in social enterprise, particularly in time-wise, uh, and helping people find a happier uh, and a more flexible working life, which is engaging um, and which is also going to stretch and develop people. So thank you for joining us and we wish you every continued success for the future. Thank you, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure and lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work. Yeah.